absolutely worthy. You and I have watched him do some miraculous things. You've been saved that first morning, that, that first time that you called upon him, you witnessed, you were a part of a wonderful miracle and so much of what he has done, you and I won't know the side of heaven. You don't know what he has protected you from. You don't know how he has cared for you, how he has directed your path, uh, what thing that was an inconvenience that turned out to be something that may have saved your life or saved your future. He is at work. And because of that, he gets the right to wear the victor's crown. He gets to sit on the throne. And you and I get to serve the benevolent dictator. And in that this morning, we need peace and hope and joy and strength. We released him this morning for Children's Church. The Beavers are, uh, they will be back next week. I think next week will also be Children's Sunday and Palm Sunday. That is fast. Anybody else feel like Easter's quick this year? Okay. All right. shining feels like spring it is so good to see uh so many of you we got several things going on right now i'm going to just i'm going to pray over some of the ministry that's taking place in our church not just here this morning with the kids and, and in service together and the music and everything good we got some people outside of our church right now that are in the middle of some really hard uh things you've seen prayer requests on uh facebook there's other things going on that we need to be uh just lifting people up would you just pray with me this morning lord we love you and we give today to you I pray for our brothers and sisters that aren't here this morning that are um, needing your wisdom and your peace and your comfort and your strength. Lord, I just pray that you would touch those that are intervening in areas on Jesus' behalf, on your behalf, uh, as ambassadors from your kingdom. And I just pray that you would give them what they need in this moment, uh, whether it be wisdom, strength, courage, Lord, just the, the words to say in the right moment. And so we give uh, our family to you right now as they... Uh, serve you in other places. Uh, Lord, there are a lot of needs uh, that have been met and many more that will need to be met. And so, God, in those things, we just pray that you would help us to open up both our hands and just look to the God of heaven and say, fill us up and use us, Lord, uh, to touch those, to draw close those that need you and help us to represent Jesus Christ uh, as well as any human ever could. Holy Spirit, again, we pray, knock our idols down. Help us to see the dangers in them this morning as we go through this passage together. Help us to see uh, how we affect other people with the decisions that we make. And then help us to love you well. Uh, Jesus, clear my mind, my heart as we go through uh, this morning's word. And make it something, Lord, that we can take with us and bless those to come later. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Kings chapter 12 is where we'll be. I'm going to cheat. Say, man, how much do you like hanging out with your people on Sunday morning? Well, I like it so much that I don't print my notes out and I don't put my mic on until we're already singing and going at it. So, I have to cheat. Everybody else has to struggle. Why? Because I like chit-chatting with you all from about 9.30 till about 10.59. So, that was this morning's routine and it was a good one. The printer this morning was even fixed. I could have actually had paper notes, but I never even made it over there long enough to do that. Why? Because I love you and my mouth is constantly running. So, <clears throat> let's get into this, right? First Kings chapter 12 is where we'll be today. I thought, honestly, I thought last week we would be finishing up uh, Solomon's life. The problem with that is, and it's the problem with human history from the seed of Adam on to my bad decisions and how they affect my children to how they will affect my grandchildren or my good decisions and how they'll affect my children and my grandchildren. I thought we had finished with Solomon's life last week. The problem is, when we get his son on the throne, we have to talk one more time about Solomon's life. And so we're going to see that this morning in the context of these two people now that are going to come forward, both claiming uh, to be kings of Israel and even um, how God had pronounced those things to happen in chapter 11. So where were we? Well, I thought we had finished Solomon's life, but I've just told you that's not true. What do we see, though, out of Solomon's life up to this moment? It's been a spectacular life. Started in turmoil. What do you mean? Well, David's house was in turmoil. So as Solomon was born, David had, had done colossal failures. There was all kinds of things going on in the house. There was fighting and infighting. There were struggles for the kingdom and who was going to be king. Like this is Solomon's birth and that's the family that he starts with. Some of us could say that sounds a lot like my story. I started in a tumultuous spot. I started in chaos. I started in pain and struggle. I started with a family that was a mess. Well, listen, you keep good company. And just because that's where you started in life doesn't mean that's where you have to end. So Solomon's life starts, and it's a spectacular life, but it starts in turmoil. It becomes amazing. This young man ascends to the throne. God makes him king of the apple of his eye. The idea of being king of the nation of Israel was very, very important to God Almighty. So when he anoints Solomon as that king, that is an amazing blessing. Sometime after that, though, what happens is he waffles. Something happens, he gets shaky. Some mixture of pragmatism and pride brings in Solomon's failure and his fall. And what happens after that? Well, ultimately, it comes to a really sad end. You know, you get books of David's life. You get chapter after chapter after chapter. Solomon, you get about 11 chapters and then a colossal crash. We, we see his wisdom literature, and that's his lasting achievement. But as far as his life goes, what do we see? Well, we see good decision, praise for wisdom. There's one picture of his wisdom. Then there is build the temple, build his palace. There's the failure that comes in chapter 11 when he starts to take in foreign wives. There's the idea that he has displeased the Lord and the Lord says, I'm taking the kingdom from you. And then it just stops. David's life goes on and on. If we see story, 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 story. It's just this prolonged, um, just amazing biography. But you would think the wisest 
person, the wisest man that had ever lived outside of Jesus Christ would have had a little bit more to his story. Unfortunately, some mixture of pragmatism, if it works, do it, or, or utilitarianism or, or hubris or something come into his life and it ended up costing him greatly. We've seen that his thoughts have been practical, protective, plain, and powerful. All of, of Psalms and Pro, or all of Proverbs, all of Ecclesiastes, even Song of Solomon, for those that hope to get married one day, these are very practical, powerful, plain pieces of Scripture that will change your life if you apply them. I told you last week, and I'll stand by it forever, you don't even have to be a Christian to be blessed by Proverbs. The wisdom in there is so good that even if you don't know the Lord, if you abide by the Proverbs, your life will be better, smoother, your children will be blessed for it. Now granted, one day you're going to wake up in the presence of King Jesus and realize that your sin still needed to be paid for. But in this world at this time, if you wanted the most peace you could have, you would open the Proverbs even as an unbeliever and read them. People to stay away from, people to gravitate toward, what to do with your money, what to do with your marriage, how to maintain your purity, how to love people well, how to use your tongue. It's all in there. And if you and I just followed it, life would get a lot better. What happens? Well, Solomon overcomes his wisdom. We finished his life by overcoming wisdom. Solomon broke many things when he overcame his wisdom. Today we see the first fruit of that. We see the first fruit of, of Solomon's decisions that were not honoring to God. And it comes to light today in chapter 12. Wisdom could not overcome his heart's direction. All the, the head knowledge in the world could not overcome the direction of a heart that was wayward. You and I have to take those thoughts that come from our heart, that will, that, that deceptive thing within us, and we have to filter them properly through the knowledge of Scripture, the truth of Scripture. And when it doesn't mesh, we have to kick it out if we don't have to repent of it first. If you and I are just passively, passively absorbing things during the day, then some things you can just let go of. Man, listen, that doesn't match. It's got to go. But if I've entertained things that dishonor God... I've entertained them in my heart, and they make it to my mind, and I say, man, that's, that, that's not scriptural. I not only just get to reject them, I have to tell God I'm sorry for believing that. I'm sorry that I bit into that. For, even if it's just in an, an infancy state, I have to repent of that sin. Why? Because I've entertained a lie of the devil. And I need God to cleanse me of that before that thing bears fruit. Before it comes up again. See the idea of those things being rooted in us. You have to pull the root out. You have to dispose of that. So if I am passively dealing in an, in an area of ministry or work or whatever else. Certain things will hit my mind that can just be disregarded. That's not biblical truth. It needs to go away. That's not biblical truth. It needs to go away. But when I am sitting there entertaining these things. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. I start to, to, to churn things that are not biblical, then I don't just get to disregard them. I have to repent of them in my heart. Why? Because where do those actions come from? The heart. So when you and I are living this life, we have to pay attention to where our heart is going. All of Solomon's wisdom could not reel back in a life where his heart was directing him in the wrong places. You say, what tugged on his heart? And that was last week's sermon. What tugged on his heart? Well, well, possessions, pragmatism, right? If it works, do it. What else? Well, there was passions and pleasure. 
Solomon's passions and his pleasure drove him. What else? There was peer pressure. He brought into his inner circle people that did not honor or love the Lord. He brought them in and asked their advice. He brought them in and fellowshiped with them. He was unequally yoked on repeat. I'm telling you, we have to understand this. Every person in your life is either ministry or fellowship. There is no third party. Maybe a passerby of some distance, but everybody within your circle is either ministry or fellowship. The people you work with are ministry or fellowship. You young ones, the people you go to school with are either ministry or fellowship. Fellowship is safe. Fellowship is where you get your accountability. It's where you're encouraged to, to do the right things. It's where you're encouraged in the knowledge and the admonition of the Lord to love well and to serve Christ. Ministry, when you let those people have access to your heart, is where you get tempted to do things that are improper. And Solomon had surrounded himself with so much peer pressure in the wrong direction that it eventually affected him into making him a people pleaser. He was a peacekeeper. One of the most dangerous things in the world is to be a peacekeeper. Jesus called us to be peacemakers, which means sometimes there's some chaos and it needs to be so. You and I live in an evil time. There's a lot of injustice going on around us. There's a lot of false doctrine going on around us. There should be moments in our life when we don't keep the peace. We kind of pull the pin on the grenade and just drop it and let it go. And then we come back in later and try to make peace. But being a peacekeeper can be one of the most dangerous things the world has ever known. Why? Because it basically just makes us very, very benign. You know, safe. Never rock the boat. Never have an opinion. Some stuff doesn't matter. If you're the person that never cares where we eat, thank you. You're a really wonderful individual, right? I'm just here to have fun and hang out with my friends. Thank you for that. But if there are things that are inside your home that shouldn't be there and you don't care, you're being lazy. You're one step away from being wicked. You and I are one step away from entertaining things and handing them to our children that God would say, I would never bless that. That should not be there. So we need to Take a firmer stance on truth and doing it in love. Don't offend people by the way you bring the truth. The truth will do that by itself. But sometimes you and I need to get a little red-faced and a little brow down. Especially right now. Your children deserve it. Right? Your children deserve you and I to throw a fit every once in a while that this will not take place or we will not watch this or we will not go here or we will not do this thing. Or when you walk in and find them doing something they shouldn't be doing on their TV or their phone, your children deserve you to get a little upset. Some of them deserve you to take that phone and sling it out in the driveway and hope a car runs over. We need to get angry about the right things. Peacekeepers don't do that. Solomon became a peacekeeper and he was the wisest man to ever live. That terrifies me. Tells me there's something missing. So Solomon's life turns into what? It turns into this broken seed. Turns into this broken seed that is planted now. It's planted in sin and it's going to bear fruit. It's going to bear fruit. Now, I, I want to work, I'm going to work quickly through chapter 12 because I just want to read the story with you and then at the end of it, I'm just going to apply it to us. Because I, I always feel this warning when I read the Old Testament, when, when we as Christians read the Old Testament, 
I think we get into this rotation where we see things and we just think, you know, man, they should know better by now. Again? Like, I am serious. Head next in the sermon series, I don't know how many of the kings, especially in Israel, that I can actually touch and spend a lot of time on without, without going into some serious depression. These stories are hard and ugly and painful. Why? Because these men and women that were in charge did things that dishonored God and people died because of it on repeat. And so it's going to be really hard to trudge through those moments for prolonged periods of time. Solomon himself has been heavy enough. At least with David, we saw some victories. We haven't really experienced the victory in Solomon's life in the last three or four times we've looked at it. His wisdom is wonderful and we are thankful for it. But to read his life and to just say, man, why did he do that? Well, we're going to get into it again today. we got two kings that are going to come up. And we're just going to look and say, why repeat the same things? I need you and I to understand that we do the same stuff. You get into the Old Testament and you watch the, the nation of Israel grumble and complain. When you get into the, 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 the wilderness time, God has provided this and he's provided that for days and days and days. He just opened the Red Sea. He just conquered all of Egypt's gods, small g. He just conquered Egypt's Pharaoh that was now changed his mind and was coming. Like you go through all that stuff. You walk through a sea on dry land. You look to your left. You look to your right. And there's either no water on one side and water building on the other. Or there's just water built up on both sides. And you walk through it on dry ground. And you get out the other side and then you grumble. And we said, man, what's wrong with them? I got a newsflash for you. You and I are worse. You want to know why? Because the Holy Spirit lives in us. They did not have that. They watched God from the outside. They watched the, the, the fire at night, the cloud by day. They saw God's presence. You and I are the temple of the living God. And so when we grumble, we do so as the temple. I don't want us to rotate into that. You and I have to take these stories and apply them to the life that we're in right now. We see them as history. They are real. These guys messed up and they led other people astray. But you and I, I want you to understand, are doing the same thing every day. We have got to get a handle on the decisions that we make and the ones that are leading into good places and blessings and ones that will lead you into curses. And again today, I'm going to show you what it looks like for a couple of kings to lead people in the wrong direction. Solomon's life turned out to be a broken seed. It was planted and it bears poisonous fruit. First Kings chapter 12, what do we see? We see the prophecy of, of God's uh, judgment in First Kings chapter 11 come true. God tells Solomon, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. And if it were not for David, your father, I would take it all. But I'm going to leave you with a tribe. And I think there is some messianic implications to that. Because do you know which tribe stays with the king? Judah. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So I think the Lord is... is, is He's belly laughing at us, right? He's putting these nuggets in there for you and I to pick up. I think today we're going to see a couple. What pulls it apart? Well, these are the things that are going to pull it apart. They're the things that pull it apart in my life and yours too. Bad counsel, horrible decisions, pragmatic ideas and their unintended consequences. God's promises fulfilled and His sovereignty displayed. That's what pulls it apart too. I want you to understand that. What pulls the kingdom apart? God's promises. You say, oh, that sounds weird. It does, don't it? 
Not all of God's promises are like the song, The Blessing. <laughs> Lord bless you. Lord keep you. Make his face shine upon you. Some of them are, I'm going to take the kingdom from you. I'm going to curse you. Those are God's promises too. In judgment. So what happens in this passage is you and I see once again that God is sovereign. He is in control. And that should do our hearts some good. You and I don't serve a weak need Lord. You don't serve a pawpaw sitting on the throne. I have to chuckle. One of the guys walked in this morning and he handed my 13-month-old a piece of chocolate. Right? And then he followed it with, I brought in breakfast. <laughs> then he followed that with looking at my wife and saying, it's fine. It's got milk in it. <laughs> Total pawpaw. That's not the God we serve. That idea has come up and it has permeated a lot of people that he is sitting there just weak kneed with a big old beard and just begging you to come on up no matter how dirty you are, how filthy you are. That is initially correct, but Christian, that idea without repentance is, is, is a manipulation of the truth. That's not the God we serve. That's not your father. Like you and I deal between fathers and grandfathers way different. We would be a lot smarter to realize God is a good heavenly father, not a grandfather sitting there just waiting for you to come up so he can hug on you and slip you some candy and maybe a little money and send you on your way. That's not how this operates. He is a corrective, loving father. His promises and his sovereignty are going to be seen in this morning's story. Let's read through 1 Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, then Jeroboam returned to Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, Your father made our yoke heavy. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. Verse 5, And he said to them, Go away for three days. Then come again to me. So the people went away. What do we see in the first five verses? First Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam's folly is how my Bible has it listed. I wanted to bring that up again because I want you to see the contrast. What is Solomon's first story as king? Solomon's wisdom. Remember he prays for wisdom. He asks for wisdom. But the first story that comes up is the two women and the baby. There's a piece here that we have to pay attention to. What is Rehoboam's first story? It is his foolishness. Solomon had not had enough impact on his son to give him some of the wisdom that you and I have gleaned for weeks, for months. Every time you've read the Proverbs, every time you've read Ecclesiastes, he did not have enough time for some reason with his own son to give him the wisdom of of ministry and leadership and kingship. So Solomon's first story is a story of his wisdom. And Rehoboam's, his son, is the story of his foolishness. Why is there a contrast? I believe the Lord wants us to see that. What else do we see in this passage? Well, the nation right now is united. The nation is united. They come forward. Jeroboam, that name that comes up, who is that? That's the guy God told Solomon, I'm going to give the kingdom to that's the guy that the prophet told Jeroboam, God is going to give you the kingdom. The prophet comes up and he tears his cloak in 12 pieces and he looks at Jeroboam and says, pick up 10 because they're going to be yours. So this guy comes back in from Egypt and what happens? 
The nation is united from in, in front of Rehoboam. They have one request. And again, we have to go back into Solomon's life and figure this out. Why did a king like Solomon push his people so hard? Did he need to? Was there anything that he had that, that he needed that he didn't have? Was there any blessing that God had not given him? What happened in his life that took him from a life of faith? The life of a faithful shepherd, even as a king, to be a faithful shepherd. What happened that took him from that to a taskmaster? Is he too worried about building the temple? Maybe it started off with the temple. Maybe it started off with the temple, right? Like, we need to get this done. This is for the Lord. And everything sounded really good. And then as the temple finished those seven years, then it was, man, I need to get my house built too. So now we've got another 13. So the first 20 years of his reign is spent cracking the whip. Did he never let up? You and I lead people. You lead them in your home. You lead them at work. You lead them at church. Train them, love them, take care of them. Figure out where the compassion is. And make sure that you and I are pushing not only the right message, but the right speed. Solomon lost the kingdom. Why? Because he pushed and pushed and pushed. And when his son had the opportunity to reverse course, we see one of his first foolish decisions was to compare himself to his father and instead of uniting the kingdom what does Rehoboam do he says I'll be worse he rules with an iron fist and it costs him everything Rehoboam's best two decisions in this passage were to give access to the people and to take a pause a three day pause sounds a lot like Esther he asked for the pause. He says, go away, give me three days and come back. Then verse 6. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon his father while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? Verse 7. And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. Sounds like pretty good counsel. But he abandoned. The counsel of who? The old men. Some of you young ones need to file that away right now. Like, hey, that might need to be on the front of my mind. And took counsel with the young men. Why does it say who had grown up with him? Because God wants us to understand he is taking counsel from people that know nothing more than he does. That should scare you and I. Rehoboam is taking counsel from people that grew up with him. They knew the same things. It's like, it's like teenagers getting advice off of TikTok. Right? Find you somebody with some gray hair to ask some questions to. Number one, I promise you, they have no skin in the game. All they want to do is see you blessed. Talk to them. See what they think. Just keep going. That was too good to just read right through. And he said to them, what do you advise me? Verse 9. With, uh, to answer the people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us. And the young man who had grown up with him said, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. 
Who does this sound like? You know who this passage reminds me of? It reminds me of Pharaoh. When the nation was captive. When they were in Egypt. They come forward and say, give us a break. Let us go out and worship. We'll be back. They're not even there yet. They're not even breaking from the kingdom. It's just give us a break. Let us go worship our God and then we'll come back. And Pharaoh says, no, and not only that, I'm going to make your workload harder. You come in here whining. You have enough time to whine. You have more time to work. If you have a choice to be like God or to be like someone the world has lifted up, be like the Lord. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Like so many Christian people, they carry burdens that God has never asked them to carry. The ministry is filled with people like this. Say, so why do marriages fall apart in ministry and why do kids turn out to be hellions or rebel or do all these other things when people are in ministry? They're elders of the church, they're deacons, they're pastors. What in the world goes on? A lot of times it happens because the pastor, the deacons, the elders, people teach a class, people serving, they're carrying burdens God never told them to carry. You and I are to do our part in the body and no more. You don't have to do everything. Neither do I. You want to know why? Because we can't. As soon as I lose my family, I'm disqualified to serve the church anyway. So churches would be a lot better off if they would make sure their, their pastors and their elders and their deacons, their families were good and their wives were good and their children were taken care of. They would be a lot better off to do that than to call them for every issue that happens in the church. But people don't want to be wise like that. They want to be selfish. They want to burden people. Why? They go, well, we're paying you to be the pastor. You go do the hospital visits, you do all the ministry, you do all this, you do all that, and then all of a sudden, five or six years later, the pastor's home is broken, his kids are a wreck, and his wife is leaving, and they're looking around thinking, man, what just happened? We thought he was a really godly person. You wrote him into the ground. Done the same thing with deacons, elders, people that serve in the church. If you ever wonder why my approach to getting people to do stuff has always been very laid back, because I don't like this. I don't want to be in charge of this. I don't like the idea that 20% of the people in the church do all the work. And I'm not going to ask that 20 to do any more work. So when things don't get done around here, I've told you from day one, it's not, I'm not ask, I, I can ask five or six people and anything that needs to get done will get done. Not going to do it. I'm not killing my workhorses. I love you and I love our church. God will give us who we need to do what we need to do when we need to do it. I will not be like Rehoboam and I will not be like Pharaoh. Will not add work to people that are doing the best they can. I will not destroy somebody's home life so that they can be at the church more doing something here. Because if you lose that flock, you've lost it all. Verses 6 to 11, what do we see? We see this, this argument, this, this, this push between humility and good counsel. What happens when you have humility and good counsel? There's a tremendous amount of force and there's good fruit. If you and I will be humble and get good counsel, your life will have force and it will bear fruit. You will not have to worry about what you're going to do or what God wants you to do. I promise you, if you will maintain humility and pray for God to use you, He will use you. If you will seek good counsel and accept good counsel, He will give you that and your life will be an unstoppable force until you meet Him one day and He says, well done. It's a very simple promise that God has given you and I. Just do a couple things. There's a battle of counsel and a battle of wills, right? The battle of counsel is good counsel versus bad counsel. The battle of wills is this, Rehoboam's will versus God's. 
Because Rehoboam is still trying to do what? Save his kingdom. And God's already made a promise that's going to come true. He's taking the kingdom. Rehoboam's decision is something like this. You can bind the kingdom together or you can build your own legacy. And what does Rehoboam decide to do? You're worried about how tough and how hard and how strong my father was? Right there's his thigh. He disciplined you with whips. I'm going to discipline you with scorpions. Your workload was heavy. I'm going to make it heavier. He didn't love or shepherd his people. He was too busy worried about building his own legacy than he was about binding the kingdom together. To love these people and to take care of them, all he had to do was say, yeah, we don't have to be so hardcore. <laughs> yeah. What do you want? Want a day off? You want to not be sending out people? Do you know Solomon, if you read back a couple chapters, he was sending people away for months at a time. 10,000 men at a time were going away to do work. And they were running in shifts. So he was sending people away from their family for a month at a time so that they could do the work he wanted them to do. And they did that three or four times a year. Colossal failure. Why? Because he chose his own legacy over binding the people together God had given him to love and to care for. A failure in perspective will kill his future. What do I mean by that? I mean this. A failure in perspective. He thinks more of himself and the kingdom he can build than he thinks about what God can do if he just yields and does the right thing. You and I are getting killed by this as well. Do you understand that you and I cannot make more of our lives than God will make of it? Do you understand if you wake up in the morning and you just humbly ask God to use you and be where you need to be today and, and say the things you need to say that he will use you and he will take that impact and run it for all of eternity? We can build our own kingdom. You can make your name great. You can do a lot of awesome stuff. But God can do more with your time than you can. And all you and I have to do is be humble and yield into the mission that he has for us. And he'll do it where you're at right now. He doesn't have to take you anywhere else. To school, to work, wherever. To the, to the grocery store, to the gas station. Filling your vehicle up and the next person comes into you. God can take moments like that and make them supernatural. So you and I don't have to fight God to, to do great things. He already wants to do that. He can do more with your future than you can. Now we'll remind you of this. Comparisons are always dangerous. The God of the infinite has a unique spot for you in his plan. Find it. Do it. You don't have to worry about anybody else's plan. You don't have to look at your father or your grandfather and be either beholden to who they were or be brokenhearted about their uh, 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 interactions with you. You don't have to do any of that. You need to look to the Heavenly Father and say, I want to be used by you. Make me something special. And you know the cool part? He just whispers back, I already have. I've already made you something special. There's nobody ever been like you. There's nobody that will ever be like you. I have a plan and it is so detailed where you go tomorrow and how you drive and whether or not you make that stoplight or miss that stoplight. All of those things are working in God's plan so that you are where you need to be when he wants you to be there. There are no chance interactions. There are no accidents and no coincidences. God is putting you where you need to be. So we get bad counsel and chaos. Why? Because Rehoboam doesn't believe those things. He believes he needs to build his kingdom. 
I'm reminded of Proverbs when it says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord like the rivers of water. He turns it wherever he wishes. Verses 12 to 15. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day. As the king said, Come to me again on the third day. And the king answered the people harshly. And forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him. Verse 14. He spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the who? By the Lord, that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord has spoken by Ahijah uh, the Shalonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. What was that promise? God said, I'm giving you the kingdom. I'm going to give you the kingdom. So Jeroboam comes back into the picture. And here's this guy stepping before the king, Rehoboam. And he's basically negotiating this. Where did this guy come from? Chapter 11 is amazing. Uh, Chapter 11 says Solomon saw Jeroboam and knew he was a man of tremendous skill. So he had put him in positions of leadership. And then God looks at him and says, I'm going to make you king. God also makes him a promise. Listen, if you just do what I tell you, I'll make you a king that lasts. Poor Jeroboam. Is even more of a mess. God's promises and judgments are not wishful thinking. His promises and his judgments are not wishful thinking. God says, done, it's done. God says, it will be done, it's done. When God makes promises to you, they're done. You and I need to deal with that really, really well in the days to come. What promises of Scripture has God made us? They need to be on the forefront of your mind. In your heart. As things get crazier around the world, these things are going to mean more to you and I. They're either going to be right in front of our face or they're going to be distant and we're not going to be able to see them and we're going to be worried and we're going to be fearful. What has God promised you and what has God promised as far as judgment goes? Don't desire to outdo bad examples. Some of the people we watch on TV, some of the people that make music, some of the people that lead in government, they, they aren't worth watching your dog. I wouldn't trust them to care for an animal. Much less look up to them and want to emulate their lives. Do not emulate bad examples. The problem is with good ones, they're not real flashy. You want to know when they really get important? Good examples? When they're gone. That's when you feel the impact of a good example. They've loved you, cared for you, taken care of you, they prayed for you. And now they're gone, and there's the hole. And flashy examples are, are, you know, we're just drawn to that idea. Sports, entertainment, politics, power, money, fame. Don't desire to outdo bad examples. Verse 16, the destruction of intense loyalty can, uh, can be destroyed in a moment. David's name is now a curse. Look at verse 16. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, The people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance of the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. David's grandson cursed his name. David's son cursed his name. It took three days and a bad decision. And now, ten of the tribes are going to look at David and say, We have no part in the house of David. Again, I go back to there are some messianic crumbs in this passage. And that's a big one. We have no 
No share in the house of David. Go on and care for your own homes. How about that one? One of the scariest things about the country we live in right now is that we are getting very dangerously close to that kind of idea. Go to your own home and take care of your own self. Getting really close to that. If you if you watch the news for any amount of time, you see it. These big cities are getting very close to anarchy. They're getting very close. And that this is the idea that comes about when that happens. You go take care of yourself. Okay? Life gets really hard and really messy when those kinds of things happen. So Rehoboam's failures, what were they? Well, he takes the kingdom under God's punishment. Wasn't his fault Solomon did what he did, but Rehoboam steps in and ramps it up. He listens to the counsel of his peers, not the wisdom of his elders. Young people, listen to me very, very carefully. If you want your life to be a little bit easier, find you some gray hair and get close. How do you do this? How do you do that? What do you think about this? Right? You're 18, you're driving, you're, you're looking at a career. Uh, holy cow, you've got a credit card and opened it up. Listen, find somebody and be like, how do I use this thing? What do I need to do with this? What should I do with my life? What do, you, what do you see coming forward? Listen to those people. Find somebody that knows how to invest their money. Find somebody that knows how to take care of their money. Bend their ear. You say, I don't have anybody in my life like that. Well, okay, you're either closed off or you're not talking to people in your church because I see 40 or 50 people right now that would love to be helpful to some of you young ones. They would love it. All they need is a question. He listens to the counsel of his peers, not the wisdom of his elders. He makes a decision to compare against his father, not love his people. He's more worried about himself and his father and his legacy than he was about his people. He gets an advisor killed and puts himself in danger by refusing to read the moment. Where is that at? A couple verses later. Look at verse 17. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent uh, Adam, who was the taskmaster over the forced labor. And all Israel stoned him to death with stones. Wow. Okay. That escalated quickly. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee from Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. Again, another messianic nugget. Do the Jewish people believe in Jesus Christ? Not as Messiah. Not as king. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and they called him to the assembly and they made him king over all of Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. What does Jeroboam do now in the verses to come? Read them with me. Look at verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built uh, Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If the people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of the people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me in return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Verse 28. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, small g, underline it, circle it, Pay attention. This guy is in big. Behold your gods, small g, and plural, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I have recreated that mess for you, and now we're going to partake in their disaster. Do you remember the story? This guy obviously doesn't. And he set one in Bethel and the other in Dan, and this is the thing became a sin. Then this thing became a sin for the people. Uh, went as far as Dan to be before one. And he made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month 
like the feast that was in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on an altar. So he did, and Bethel sacrificed him to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the priests and the high places that he had made. Verse 33, he went up to the altar, and he made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart, not God's command, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and he went to the altar to make offerings from bad to worse. Jeroboam, what's he do? Well, his first act is to basically betray all of what God has told him. Do you understand God had already told him he was going to bless him? God had already told him, made the promise. This guy steps in, and he gets pragmatic. He looks at the idea of what's going to happen, and he just thinks, man, I need to shut this down. I'm reminded of this with my children. Things you yell as an adult, you never thought you would yell, stop fiddling. How many of you said that? Maybe it's just me because I don't like stuff getting broken. And it just seems like when one of them's fiddling, something's getting ready to get broken. Smack this, break this, tap that, hit, stop fiddling. Right? That's when the keys get locked in the car. That's when just bad stuff happens. Jeroboam. God makes him a promise. The promise comes true, and what's he do? Hmm, start fiddling. Touch this, take this, build this, make this, we'll do this, get outside. And he just runs off the rails immediately. He fails to remember what God had promised him. What else does he do? He gets bad counsel. Again, he performs a purely sinful act. Builds the gold calves again, and he fails to remember the, the, the history, the lessons of the past. What happened to the gold calves before Moses is on the mountain. Aaron builds the, the, the golden calves. Moses comes down the mountain and Aaron says, I don't know what happened. I put the gold in the fire and it come out two calves. Right? Read it. Read the passage. That's the verbiage. I don't know what happened, Moses. I mean, the people wanted something, so I just I threw some gold in the fire and it popped out two golden calves. Unbelievable. I'm as surprised as you are. What happens next? They grind them down and make the people drink them. And they died. Jeroboam says, man, I am so worried right now. That sounds like a good idea. Let's do that. God has made me a promise. I'm really not too worried about that right now. I'm more worried about the people going back to Judah, to Jerusalem, to serving Rehoboam. Let's, uh, let's build a couple of golden calves. Work the first time for about 40 days. Right? And then it killed people. Sounds reasonable. 29 to 33, he brings others into his sin with him. He leads people into sin. The only thing more dangerous than sinning against God is demanding or leading other people to do it with you. Parents, that you better you better listen. Like listen like the Bible means it. Like listen and obey, hear what I'm saying and obey that. The only thing more dangerous than sinning yourself is to lead someone else or to coax someone else to do it with you. That's why the Bible says leadership's not for everybody. Right? I could very easily lead a lot of people into a mess. The only thing more dangerous than me doing it privately is me leading you all to go with me. But it's a tale of two kings and me, right? Here's the deal. As they come this morning to play, as we get wrapped up, these stories just break my heart. They get me all ramped up because this is the part that blows my mind. Two kings and me, it's an eerily familiar tale. Do you understand? You say, why? Well, I too live in and inherited a broken kingdom. This world, my family, our church, it's all broken. God is fixing it. The kingdom of God is coming even right now and putting pieces back together. And it is beautiful to be a part of. He's doing the same thing in my life, but it is still 
broken. There are dangers everywhere, temptations everywhere. And as I watch these kings fail drastically, just extravagantly, I am reminded that I too do the same stuff. We're part of a broken kingdom. You and I too have failed like these two kings. We've compared ourselves to others. We've sinned against those we should love and we've sinned against those that God loves dearly. We've listened to and received bad counsel. Actually, we've begged for it at times because you know what a lot of times bad counsel does? It reinforces what I wanted to do anyway. Uh-huh. It reinforces what I wanted to do. We sought out the counsel of our peers and we ignored our elders. We put our friends and people that we love in danger by sinning against God. We've led them that way. We've hurt them. We've led them into gossip. We've led them into temptation. We've led them into lust. We've enticed others to sin with us. And this is the big one. We've forgotten God's past promises and the judgments that He's already made. And He's made them against sin. And you know what? You and I are just getting ready to commit it again. Like we're struggling constantly with certain things or we're choosing, willfully choosing to disobey God. Why? Because we don't remember the last time we got our hands smacked. A loving God stepped in and corrected us. Not the papa that said, just go ahead, you'll be fine. But the dad that said, if I let you walk down that path today, it's going to curse you tomorrow and your children and your grandchildren. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to reel it back in. You and I find ourselves forgetting the past promises of God, forgetting the past judgments, and getting ready to step right back into things that are going to hurt us. That is what was happening here. And then finally Paul would say, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And the answer is Jesus Christ. The deliverer has come. You and I need to yield to him. We need to see that crown as one that cannot be removed. We need to see that throne as not one we should be sitting on, but one that we should be bowed in front of. And when that happens, God will take you and I and create blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Usefulness, strength, and courage. Would you stand with me this morning? If you need that this morning, it is available. It's available at the altar through prayer. It's available through counsel with someone else that would love to help and to be a benefit to you. If you're struggling this morning, 